0: Let's pray. Father, there is a fear that we may have prayed too much this morning. And there is a fear that church goes long this morning. There's a fear. Plans change this morning, there's thoughts and ideas in our minds that distract us and withdraw us from our attention to you and to your word, but you are greater than those things because you have brought your children to your word this morning to feed on your grace and your power and your goodness and your gospel so we hand over this time to you as a way to show you our submission to you as you work magnificently in our lives. Father, you are grand and glorious. You are full of power and might. Your sovereignty, sovereignty reaches to every molecule in the universe even those which are beyond our sight. You love in ways that we cannot express because your love is a perfect love and your holiness is revealed in all of your attributes and characteristics and your excellencies and your perfections. You are grand beyond our comprehension. Jesus You are supreme. You are Lord of the church. You are Lord of the universe. And every believer and every Christian bows at your feet and declares, Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are Lord of the entire universe, universe, which means every unbeliever will one day bow their knee before you and declare You are Lord. All of creation will declare you are Lord. And we thank you for the grace that you have given us that we get to say it today. And that tomorrow and that the rest of this day we get to dedicate to you, our master. Help us do that now under the authority of your word It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Christian and I, Pastor Christian and I, did not, like, talk about, hey, what are you going to talk about in communion? Oh, what are you going to tell me on your sermon? I mean, we talk about the text and things, but like, are you going to say this? Or I'm going to say that. So, he brought up something that I thought was interesting because it's something that I'm going to talk about that Paul talks about in this text. He brought up a very important word, and that word was legalism. As he read for us a list of commands in the Bible, and then said, "It's not legalism to tell you what God commands of you." I think it's important that we understand what legalism is then. We, I think the church, when I say we, I don't mean you specifically, I say we as in like the the American church in general uh, believes certain things. And I see this because I know tons of pastors and I know lots of Christians, not just you, but outside this church and pastors all over America in a different churches, and I read articles, and I read books, and I know what's going on. I know the heartbeat, or the ethos, or the culture of the American church. And the American church does not understand the term legalism. Following God's rules is not legalism. And I'm going to actually strengthen that statement even more. Strictly and strongly following God's rules is not legalism. Strictly and strongly enforcing God's rules is not legalism. Legalism is following God's rules apart from faith. Obedience is following God's rules in faith. So what's the difference between obedience and legalism? Faith. James 2.26 makes that pretty clear. Faith apart from works is dead. That is significantly important for us to understand as we address the next four verses in Colossians, which we'll cover, cover over the next few weeks because God commands saved people to live radically obedient lives. Well, radical obedience is a little radical. don't have to be so extreme, man. Where's like the balance in life? There is no balance in Christianity, it's radical. Well, why can't you talk? Why do you have to talk about obedience? I don't want to talk about obedience. When you talk about obedience, people don't like it. I just really think, I don't like it. I mean, like I, Pastor Christian and I have sit down and have conversations and he'll be saying things to me about obedience and certain things that the church should be. And I'm sitting there going, stop talking. (laughs) I don't want to hear this. Stop convicting me, Lord, with all your rules and commands that I have to follow. We don't like obedience. Why can't we talk about evangelism? Let's talk about love. Can't you preach on encouragement? How about the end times? What about grace? What about faith? Can we pick some other do- I like when you talk about the sovereignty of God because that's about who God is, not about what I have to do. When we talk and preach and the Bible teaches about obedience, we get really uncomfortable because it's convicting. Went to men's retreat this weekend. One of the men went with us said something really cool he goes just wasn't sure if I wanted to come because I know that coming here means I'm gonna have to change and he came anyways so he was obedient to the spirit to lead him there that's the reality when we talk about obedience you're you're forced to change and we don't like that talk about anything but, but obedience and when you talk about obedience it's just a bunch of rules that's legalism God commands his people to live radically obedient lives. And radical obedience has been marked as legalistic by the church today because we have have unbiblically separated obedience from grace. And we act as if obedience is not required while we're under grace. That's the law. The law is a bunch of rules. We're not under the law anymore. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. We're under grace. We don't have to live by the rules anymore. Have you read the New Testament? Did you not hear what Pastor Christian just shared with us during communion? He was reading Bible verses. He wasn't making those up off the top of his head. Those aren't his rules. Those are Jesus' rules for the church, the people who are not under the law, but under grace. And this false understanding of grace presumes that grace allows us to sin. Now, we would never say that out loud, but we think and feel and behave that way. When in reality, biblical grace is the power and the means to radical obedience. And I'm using the word radical, and I'm going to explain why in a second. But over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul unveil the truth about obedience in the Christian's life. And my hope is that you are strong. Listen to me. My hope as your pastor My responsibility is to shepherd your soul to Jesus. To show you his words, his kingdom, his power, his glory, his grace. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional. I had a very long weekend. (laughs) I think I'm just really tired is all. (laughs) We were Christian and I were at Men's Retreat on Friday night. We were up till 4:35 in the morning teaching 3 18-year-old boys the Bible for about 4 hours. Went to bed, woke up, did the rest of the day in Men's Retreat, came here, worked on my sermon till midnight, finally went home, went to bed, woke up, came here. So I'm just running on fumes and anything good that comes out of me now you can trust that is fully the Holy Spirit. And I enjoy this position of being completely weakened because whew, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, in my weakness, Christ is strong. So, Jesus, help me. <laughs> my hope for you as your pastors, as I shepherd you, as I try my hardest today to love you well, is that you wouldn't go, Pastor Mark really cares about I mean, I hope you feel that way, but, and, oh, Jesus is just so, like, such a nice, he's like a pillow on a rough day, which is true, but not today, because my hope for you is that you are strongly convicted of your sin. and that you are strongly convicted toward radical Christ-like righteousness in radical Christ-like obedience. Think about this, I mean this is, after all, don't all Christians, we just sang a song, I forget the exact lyrics, but it was like something about being like you. Uh, Talking, singing to Jesus and I don't remember the lyrics, but I thought that's exactly my point today. Don't all Christians admit that we want to be like Jesus? Isn't that what everyone said this morning during prayer time? Someone said, oh, make, Lord, make us like you. Isn't that what we all agree on? Don't we all agree we want to be like Jesus? Wasn't Jesus perfectly obedient? And wouldn't perfect obedience technically be the most radical form of obedience? So then if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to live radically obedient to God's word. Unlike Jesus, we will fail. And like Jesus, we pursue obedience. If we want to be like him. And when I say radical, I mean living a life that Though you will sin, I'm very aware that you will all fail at this daily. I do. We all will. I'm not talking about perfection or perfect obedience. I'm talking about radical obedience. And by radical, I mean living a life that even though you sin, you will also, by God's grace, Work out your salvation through the sanctifying process of killing your sin and pursuing righteousness and absorbing the word of God and praying and going to church and being obedient day after day after day, killing your sin every morning and pursuing righteousness every morning day after day after day until the end of your life. And that is hard and that takes work and that is energy and you need God to do it. You need Jesus to be your goal if you're going to make it and you need the power of the Holy Spirit to get you through it. It's endurance. That's the Christian life, endurance, and part of your endurance is killing your sin and pursuing daily obedience over and over and over again until you die. That is radical because that is what Jesus does. And Paul says to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 2, 5, this is our text, we're in Colossians for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoice in to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul had not even met the Colossians. And that is why he says, for though I am absent in body, because he's not with them and hasn't ever seen them. But the encouragement here is that he tells them that though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. Now this Greek word for spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's a reference to a word that means the immaterial part of the human personality. It's it's your spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but your spirit. This word is used throughout the Bible all the time, Old Testament and New Testament, that we have a spirit that is our own. And we look at Romans 8, Paul says, our spirit agrees with the Holy Spirit that we are heirs with God, or heirs of God and heirs with Christ. So our spirit is in agreement with the Holy Spirit that we're children of God. And we still use this phrase, in, you know, this idea of spirit. We use it today. We use it like kind of colloquially as well. Like your child has a game, but you've got to work so you can't be at the game. So you say to your kid, I'll be there in spirit. Right? That's the same idea, indicating that though you're not like physically present... Your thoughts and cares and concerns will be with them as they do this thing or play their game. And that is Paul's intention. That though he is not physically present, his thoughts and prayers are with them. His concerns are for them and that he cares for them. And in his physical absence, we see something beautiful. What we see from Paul ultimately here is joy. He says that though he is not with them in body, he's with them in spirit. And in that distant camaraderie that he shares with them in Christ, Paul says that he is rejoicing. In what is Paul rejoicing? What's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing, verse 5, to see their good order and the firmness of their faith. Of their faith in Christ. But here's the situation. He is presently rejoicing them for something that he has not seen them do. He hasn't seen their good order and he has not seen their firmness of faith. He's received word about what they're going through and what they're facing is a heresy called Gnosticism, but he has not seen this act, these two acts of good order, firmness of faith in Christ played out yet. Why? Why then is he rejoicing? if He hasn't seen it yet. Because... Paul's rejoicing has two things. His rejoicing, number one, has qualifications. There are qualifications that need to be met in order for Paul to rejoice in the church. The second thing that Paul's rejoicing has is confidence that those qualifications will be met by the Colossians. And that is why he is currently rejoicing, though he has not seen them. Because the qualification is, you have to do these things in order for me to rejoice, but my confidence in you is that you will do them, therefore I'm rejoicing now, because I know you'll do them. The qualification is not this. If you read this, then know that I'm rejoicing in you. Just because you're saved. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that the qualification is... If you respond to this letter with good order in the church and firmness of faith in Christ, then I will rejoice in you. It's a conditional statement. The Bible is filled with conditional statements. If you do this, then this will happen. Christian read one for us this morning during communion. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. So there is a qualification to Paul's joy in the Colossians, and that qualification is that their response to his letter is that they adhere to and believe and follow these doctrines and instructions. Or another way of saying that is the qualification for Paul's joy in the church is their obedience. Now, grammatically speaking, this word rejoicing is is in an active voice, so that's the grammatical structure, it's an active voice and a present tense, meaning the Colossians, before they even respond to this letter, in either obedience or disobedience, Paul's already rejoicing because Paul knows that they will obey these instructions and they will believe his doctrines. Well, how does Paul know that? What is it about the Colossians that gives Paul such incredible confidence that they will believe and obey what he teaches in this letter? What gives Paul such assurance about the Colossians? Well, the answer is not the Colossians. The answer is Jesus. And herein lies Paul's automatic assumption that he teaches in other places that Jesus teaches that scripture is full of. The automatic, automatic assumption that underlines and is the foundation of this text is this. Christians will obey their Lord. If you are a slave and you had a master, you have no choice but to obey. And the Bible calls Christians doulas, which is Greek for slave. Some of your versions might call it servant or bond-servant. That is an erroneous translation. It is slave. And if we are a slave to Christ, then Jesus is our master. And you don't get to disobey your master. The difference is we find incredible joy in our slavery. So there's incredible joy in obedience Christians love Jesus. That's why Paul is so sure that they will obey, because Christians love Jesus. Christians listen to Jesus, and follow Jesus, and pursue Jesus, and believe Jesus's words, and they obey Jesus. Christians believe all of scripture. Christians believe God, and they believe in the promises that come with obeying his commands, and they believe in the consequences that come with not obeying his commands. And because Christians believe God's word. And we know that Paul believes that the Colossians are genuine believers because at the beginning of the letter in verse two, Paul addresses them and says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So given that they are genuine believers and Paul's automatic assumption about Christians is that they obey, that automatic assumption applies right to them, meaning what Paul's telling them is when you read this letter, which is the word of God, you will obey it. And I know you'll obey it because I know that you're believers and i let believers obey. And in doing so, you'll have good order in the church and your faith in Christ will become firm. And in my confidence that Jesus will do that in you, I rejoice. Not because the Colossians are exceptional Christians but because the Colossians are just Christians. And Christians hear God's word and respond to God's word with obedience. And I know you're starting to get some of the gears are grinding, you're going, what about when I don't? This is not... Praise to the faithfulness of the Colossians. And this is a fear. This is a, a, something we need to be careful of. Because even when we obey, then we start to become confident in ourselves and arrogant in our obedience. And we start sinning because we're obeying. It's just, it's, we're flooded with sin. It, it's, it's in our veins. It's laced throughout our, who we are. We have a new identity. We are not called sinners in the Bible anymore. Believers are called saints. Slaves, like I just said. Beloved. Children, brothers, sisters, all positive words with identifying our new identity in Christ. But sin is, the Bible's also because sin, sin is still in you. It's not your identity anymore, but it's in you and it infiltrates everything. So this isn't praise to the Colossians or or your own praise for when you obey. It is praise to the faithfulness of, of Christ to ensure that all his true followers will truly follow him, listen to him, believe him, and obey him. And that is the underlying reality of everything that Paul writes to the church, that believers respond to Scripture with obedience. And if we did, if we did, if the church, if believers genuinely did respond to scripture with obedience most people would call you radical or extreme because and what makes me say that that's what they did to the apostles that's what they said about jesus in acts chapter five the apostles were preaching in the synagogue they were like oh whoa whoa, whoa, whoa you crazy radical extremists you christians it was a derogatory term in the first century they're making fun of them. Who? Oh, Christian? Like Jesus? Like like your Christ? They're preaching in the synagogue. Took them out of the synagogue. Beat them. Their response: They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That is radical. Now, I am aware of those grinding gears in your heart and mind that are saying, dude, I can't, you can't seriously expect me to be perfect. You're telling me I have to obey everything. I'm not going to obey everything. I'm not perfect. I understand that. God understands that. Jesus understands that. Paul understands that. Perfect obedience is not attainable in this life. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. And yet, the Bible does not give us that as an out or an excuse to not be obedient. Paul doesn't make that a usable excuse to sin. Oh, I can't be perfect. Oh, well, then you can sin. And then claim God's grace. Instead, what Scripture does is it doubles down on the importance of obedience to your salvation. 1 John 2 4 some of these texts are you're, you're not going to like them I, it's hard for me to like them because i look and i go this isn't me i it's just hard to do listen to what john says in first john 2 4 whoever says i know him which is probably everyone in this room would say i know jesus i follow jesus everyone who says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him that is extreme so what do we do with that text? Well, that, that doesn't apply to me because, um, I, mean, I don't know, how do you justify that? It's not applying to you. What do you say? I mean, I've heard people who read this and not say it means I have to obey his commands. I think we just kind of think, well, yeah, but I'm covered by grace, so it's okay that I don't obey. That's not what that verse is telling you. That verse is telling you to obey. And I know it sounds pretty condemning, right? So let's let's hear from John again. And and let's hear from Jesus also. And get like a a more encouraging and inspiring and maybe a a happier, more like helpful way for us to see the importance of obedience uh, instead of feeling like the condemnation of I'm a liar and the truth is not in me because I don't obey. First John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Meaning if you love God, you keep his commandments. And then I'm going to read two verses for you and I'm going to stick them together. The verses are John 8.42 which is not on the PowerPoint and then John 14.15 which is on the PowerPoint. And I'm just going to read one and then the other without telling you that I'm switching. And so this is just Bible verse. None of my words are in it. And just listen to Jesus speak in different texts and listen to the sentence that is created. John 8, 42 and John 14, 15. If God were your father, you would love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Can we just let that we just let that sink in for a second? I'm going to read it again. Just absorb this reality. This is a conditional statement. If, then. If this is true, then this is true. Which is clearly means, if this is not true, then this is not true. If God were your father, you would love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Meaning, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. And if you don't love me, then God is not your father. John 8. If God is not your father, Satan is. None of those are my words. That is from the mouth of your Lord And your Savior. I realize that this may sound very lawful, uh, as if we're being legalistic. Follow the rules or you're not saved. These verses are not saying follow the rules without faith. Don't worry about faith, just follow the rules and you're saved. That's not what these texts are saying. That would be legalism. These verses are saying follow the rules. Because you're saved. Follow the rules because you have faith in Christ. Follow the rules in the power of the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus to you because your faith is in Christ. Not because you have to, but because you love Jesus and you want to. That is very different because if that's your motivation and you fail to obey... Your attitude won't go, eh, whatever, I got grace. You're going to go, Lord, change me. The verses appear to be be legalistic to us because they don't say it's okay to fail. You're covered by grace. And they don't say that because It's not okay to think that way if you're already saved. You already have grace if you're already saved. That grace is applied to your power of obedience. I'll talk about that in a second, but we abuse grace. We fail in our obedience, and that disobedience is sin, and sin is not okay. And we talk about it like it is okay because of grace. And our misunderstanding of the purpose of grace has skewed our understanding of obedience. So we abuse grace. We claim grace when we sin. Which is good. We're good so far. That's great. That's wonderful. The problem with that is... When you sin and grace covers you, which it does because all of your sins are forgiven. So if you sin today and you're a believer, that sin is nailed to the cross and buried in the grave and it is dead and you have conquered it. Not because you conquered it, but because of Romans 8, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Christ has conquered that sin. It is paid for. When you sin, grace of God has, the grace of Jesus Christ has forgiven you your sin. It is gone and it is dead. And we should look at that sin that we just committed and say, you're dead. That is not who I am. But because we have grace, we get a little too loose. It's like grace is like a safety net. And we just kind of fall back into the safety net. And because of grace, we get too loose with our sin. And sin doesn't become that serious because sin can't kill us anymore because we're Christians and because of grace. So we go, well, sin can't kill me. So if I sin, whatever, uh, you know, I just, I can just fall off the, the, the high beam, the tight rope that is trying to live the perfect Christian life, which I can't do, and we fall off all the time, and we fall into the safety net of grace. But then we go, you know what, i got a safety net. Do I really have to work so hard to stay balanced on being obedient to Jesus? You know what, I just don't really care that much. I'm just going to whoop, fall into the safety net because I can't die. So we abuse grace, which is exactly what Paul talks about. In Romans 6.15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Paul's saying take sin seriously. You have to kill your sin. You have to hate your sin. You have to make war with sin. Instead, we let it exist and float around us because after all, if I do that sin or this sin, it's okay, I'm covered by grace. And we're flippant with sin. And that is exactly what Paul is arguing against in Romans 6. Grace is not meant to allow you to continue to sin. Grace is all about obedience. By grace, you are saved. What is you are saved means? It means you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That act is an act, when you put your faith in Christ, that act is an act of obedience. Only by grace have you obeyed the gospel. Grace has created in you obedience. And then we go, oh, by grace I'm saved. I can keep sinning. then we abuse grace and turn it into a means to sin instead of a means to continue in that obedience, which is its purpose. Grace is the means that God uses to cause your obedience. By God's grace, God covers your sins in Christ and by God's grace, he gives you the righteousness of Christ which can only produce your obedience to his commands. That's justification. Justification is a theological term we use that, that explains that moment when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. God is the judge. He's got a gavel and you say, yes, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and I want to be saved. And he slams the gavel down and declares it is said, settled, it is done, it is declared, it's finished. You are a believer. Your sins have been forgiven, takes your sins, and you now have been given the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is. And that's what grace does. Grace covers your sins, forgives your sins, and then God's grace gives you the righteousness of Christ. And with the righteousness of Christ, you can now obey, which you could not do at all without the righteousness of Christ. If you're not justified, if you're not saved, you can't obey. You just can't do it. It's impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6. So, when Paul says that he is rejoicing to see their good order and firmness of faith in Christ, those are just different ways in which they will obey. So, the product of our justification, our sins being forgiven and the righteousness of Christ being on us, the product of that justification is that we will get in order. Meaning we will align with God's order, which throughout Scripture is a series of commands that we are called to follow and obey. Meaning, justification will produce obedience. And the product of, another product of justification that Paul says here in 2.5, Colossians 2.5 is also that we will have a firmness of faith in Christ. Firmness of faith means staying in line. Just as a child is told to color within the lines, God tells us to live within his lines, his rules, his commandments, which, are, which is our obedience to him. Man, when you start talking like that, oh, stay in the line, stay in the line, it's like, whoa, 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 legalism, dude. We're Christians, bro. Like we, We're free to roam around and do whatever we want. We're covered by grace. Got to be risky for, for, for Jesus Sometimes I got to sin. It's interesting how we live that way. We, I don't know any Christians who are like, sin is okay. I don't know anybody who thinks that way. Or I'm sorry, I don't know anyone who talks that way. That says things like, sin is okay. Christians don't say that. But then they're like, go sin. And they go, dude. And, and we tell them, dude, you can't do that. That's sin. And they're like, yeah, but I'm covered by grace. It's like, wh- how did we go from sin's not okay to, I guess sin's okay when I do it. Paul is not rejoicing to see them get saved and then live nominal Christian lives. He is rejoicing because he knows that these believers, and he knows they're believers, will turn from their sin and follow Jesus and obey God's word. He knows it so much, he's already happy about it. We know for certain that Paul hates legalism. So any of this like legalistic talk, we're reading Paul's words, we're reading Jesus' words, we know the Bible is anti-legalist. And we know Paul's anti-legalism because he was a Pharisee and he hated the Pharisaical legalism. He abandoned being a Pharisee to follow Christ. So we often think of Paul like leaving the life of following the rules like Pharisees to live a life free of rules that are all about grace. The Christian life is not free of rules, and that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't alleviate us from following God's commands. The gospel ensures that we are able to follow God's commands. That's the difference. The gospel doesn't alleviate you from being obedient. It's not like you don't have to be obedient anymore. You're saved by grace, so you just go to heaven. What the gospel does it is it empowers you to obedience in Christ. And as we pursue obedience and will fail at it, probably daily the gospel reminds us that those sins are forgiven which is not a free pass to sin but instead what grace does is it reminds you that when I fail and when I am disobedient which will happen grace is the reminder that you are covered by Jesus and that gift and that freedom and that Gospel is now your motivator to live your life for him in obedience. So grace becomes a power to live in obedience, not an excuse to live in disobedience. Now we need to be careful because we don't want to turn away from God's grace in the gospel to the point where now we believe we're earning our salvation with our obedience. That is legalism. Instead, we need to think that I have to prove my salvation with my obedience. I don't think that lands well on Christians at all. Prove that you're saved by living obediently. Like That is not what I heard growing up in the evangelical church. Prove it? Prove it? Isn't that why I needed Jesus in the first place? Because I couldn't prove it? Yeah, that's exactly why you needed Jesus. And now you have Jesus, so now you can prove it. Isn't that awesome? What a cool gospel. Without Jesus, you can't prove it. By God's grace, you get Jesus. Now you have Jesus, who is the power to prove it. Want me to prove to you that we need to prove it? <laughs> I'm going to. John 15, 8. Jesus said, this is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the person you follow. He said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's another way of saying the same thing. 2 Peter 1:10. Be all the more diligent to confirm Your calling and election. That means prove you're saved. Now, proving you're saved, we need to kind of navigate that carefully, really carefully. That shows us the power of God's grace. God's grace in Christ gives you the perfection of Jesus' righteousness that enables you and empowers you to prove and confirm your salvation. Not because God isn't sure if you're saved, what Peter said is you're elected. Now live a life that confirms that election, or as Jesus says it, live a life that proves that election. Not because God's not sure. Of course God's sure. He's the one who elected you. He doesn't need your validation. He knows if you're genuinely saved. Why do we need to prove and confirm it? Because if his power to save you has truly given you Jesus' righteousness then you ought to look like and live like you're righteous. This isn't about proving it to God. This is about you living the gospel after you have believed the gospel. And yes, I want to prove it to God. He doesn't need me to prove it. He knows if I am or or I'm not. Why do I have to prove it to God? It's our language. The words we're using I'm commanded to prove it, so then I think, oh, I have to prove it. And once you have to do something, it becomes something you don't want to do. Right? I say this to my wife all the time. I'll be, like, walking to the trash can, like, I'm going to take the trash out today. And she'll be like, honey, can you take the trash out today? And I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> like, instantly, like, stop telling me what to do, woman. And then I, <laughs> I don't say that to her. And I, And I just, like, I don't know what it is. When someone tells you to do something, suddenly you're like, man, now I have to do it. When I was in school working on my master's degree and I'm just like, these are great books. I just don't want to read them today. (laughs) Like, I'd love to read these on my own time, but I have to read them by Friday. Ugh. When we have to do something, it's not fun. And then we read a Bible verse that says, prove that you're saved. Confirm that you're saved. And we're like, oh, I have to prove it. And then you're trying to live obediently with no joy. And that's not what the gospel is doing for you. That's not what the gospel is meant to do for you. What the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to do, what Jesus does in you, is he fills you with joy. And that joy is your strength. Micah 8.10. Micah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. That joy is the power and the strength that I have to say, I don't have to obey him. Because if I don't, I'm still saved. But man, I want to obey him, and I'm going to live my life pursuing, following, and living for Jesus. It's something I want to do. I want to serve my wife. I want her to feel comfortable and loved and cared for and cherished. I don't, I have to do it because I'm her husband, but if I think, oh, I have to love my wife today, you're never going to love your wife well. I have to parent my children well what if i want to parent my children well it's all about our perspective when we do that when we are empowered by joy to obey god's word and obey and follow his commands it will look radical Because you are going to start seeing the Bible in a whole new light. You're going to start seeing verses that say, if you continue in habitual sin, then you're not saved. And we're going to go, well, that can't mean me because I'm covered by grace. Not if you're living in habitual, repetitive, and willful sin. Hebrews 10 says you're not. And then we go, well, you can't talk like that in the Christian church today because by grace I'm saved, and if I sin, it's okay. That's not what the Bible teaches, and I'm telling you, if we, by the power of the gospel and the joy of the Lord is our strength to, to, to obey Jesus, we're going to start reading the word clearly, and we're going to see some of these statements, these texts that I read for you today, with the reality that this isn't, there's, there's nothing foggy about these verses. Prove to me to be my disciples. If you love me, you will obey me. What is unclear about that? Nothing, and we kind of just skip it. We go ah, whenever I'm saved, or we figure out how what it could really mean for saved people. That must be for unsaved people. They must have to get saved, and then that's 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 for them. Yeah, we just don't value the disgusting. Putrid and despicable nature of our sin. We don't hate it enough. And we don't hate it enough probably because we don't love Jesus. We don't love God. We don't have just this burning, consuming desire and passion for God enough. Because if we did, we'd start to think and feel more like Him, and He hates sin more than you do, I promise. So as our devotion and love and affections grow for Jesus, our hatred for the future disgusting nature of sin will also develop and grow and we will start to despise sin and the sin that we notice notice in our life and sin in our life, we will start to go, that I was not aware of in my life. That needs to be killed. And then we're going to feel convicted and we're going to start killing sin and hating sin and pursuing righteousness. And by the power of the gospel and the grace of God, we can... And have, Jesus has already, and because He has already, we can now murder and kill that sin and make war with it and hate it and pursue the righteousness instead of the sin. <coughs> That's gonna look radical. It's gonna look radical. You're gonna look weird. <laughs> to the world, it's gonna look weird. It's gonna, it's gonna look crazy. You don't watch television? You don't even have a TV in your home? What are you, a weird person? What do you do in your free time? Read. (laughs) You read? That's all you do in your free time is read? You don't watch Is This Cake? Have you guys seen that show? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not telling you 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 can't watch television. (laughs) Obviously I do. I know there's a show called Is This Cake? But, Mm -hmm. like, I'm saying like what if God what if God convicted you? you 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 became so obedient and and your perspective changed to the point where God was like I don't want you specifically you person it's not a biblical command but I don't want you to have a television. And you felt convicted to the point where you shouldn't have a television. That's wasting your time or whatever. And you get rid of your TV. People will think that's weird. Christian told me a conviction he had I'm going to share it with the church. <laughs> He said, "He said, he said, I don't think I should ever buy a new set of golf clubs." And I was like, "I just bought a new set of golf clubs." I was like, "Yeah, that's your conviction, not mine." I tell that to you because what I'm telling you ultimately is that Christian needs a new set of golf clubs, and you guys should get him. Oh, I'm teasing. Unless you want to. Anyways, uh, I, I just think we'll all share different convictions in our Christian life. I mean, there are things that are not a matter of you're convicted and I'm not. Be thankful in everything. You don't get to not have that conviction. You don't get to not have that conviction. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Be thankful in everything always. It's not a choice. You don't get get to say, I'm not convicted toward that. It's commanded. You don't get to, I don't want to forgive them. It's commanded. You don't get to say, well, I feel like getting drunk. I'm just not convicted in that way. It doesn't matter. It's commanded. Do not get drunk. There are things that are blatant commands that you don't get to have a conviction over whether you can or can't do it. The conviction is you have to do these things or, as I said before, the joy of the Lord provokes you to love to pursue the righteousness instead of that sin. Then there are things on the fringe, things that aren't in the Bible. Can I have a television? Should I buy a new set of golf clubs? Should I buy this card? Does it matter what kind of home I have? How do I spend my free time? So like those things, I think... We start perceiving the gospel as it is, which is once we're saved and justified begins this process called sanctification. Sanctification is a process of you proving that you've been justified. They're inseparable. And you don't get glorified, which is the end result, unless sanctification proves justification, which is a process of you becoming perfected daily. That's why the word salvation encapsulates all of that. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We call that whole thing salvation. And we use, we use the term wrong. We say saved, and we're really referring to when we were justified. And the Bible changes, the, doesn't really speak of salvation that way. It does, it does, but it also speaks of salvation in this way. You've been justified. If you're genuinely saved, we'll see. Salvation will be revealed... In your glorification, which you only get if you're sanctified, which shows that you've been justified. Which means your life is a constant and endless pursuit of obedience to Jesus. We just don't think that way in the church. And if we did, it would look crazy radical. It would look kind of extreme. And the product of all that is this. God's glory. Jesus said in John 15, 8, that when we bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples, he says, by this, my father is glorified. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light shine before others. What does that mean? That means obey. What is the light? Christ, right? When you think about your light shining, what is, what is shining out of you? What does it look like? What is it? Is it holiness? Is it righteousness? Is it Jesus? Well, if you're disobeying, is the light shining out of you? It can't. When does the light shine out of you? Well, you're obeying, while you're being righteous, while you're being holy, and you can only be righteous and holy in obedience. Because it's not righteous and holy to disobey. So let your light shine before others means be obedient and others will see it, what's the product of that? Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The product of your obedience is not self-exaltation, it is Christ-exaltation, it is gospel magnification, and it is God-glorification. Okay, so God gets the glory, Cool, what do I get? It's not a selfish question. It's okay to ask that. You're part of this too. God gets glory. What do you get? Joy. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2.5. I rejoice. I'll summarize Paul's statement in Colossians 2.5. I rejoice in your obedience. That's what that means. Paul's rejoicing in obedience so let's just think about this pragmatically in your own life experiences. When you sin, does it make you happy? And you could maybe say, "Well, in the moment the sin feels like it's good for me, like it feels it makes me kind of satisfied in the moment, but that's not genuine satisfaction because it doesn't last." So sin doesn't make you happy. And I don't I, I've never counseled someone who came to my office and was like, "I just love sin." It's just making me feel really good. Like, no, everyone's like, comes in to talk to me and they're like, this sin is ruining my life. I've never heard a Christian man say, ah, I just yelled at my wife and then she yelled at me and then I smacked her. Man, I am just, I feel so good right now, I just really feel like the joy of, I'm just really feeling the joy of the Lord today. <laughs> like, I'd be like, What? That's not how we act when we sin. We don't think of sin. We don't feel happy with our sin. We don't like it. It's never good for us. We never enjoy it. We hate it. We agonize over it. It kills us. It hurts us. It ruins us. It ruins us emotionally and mentally and spiritually and often and usually physically and at least psychosomatically. Meaning that the emotional and and spiritual product of our sin that is hurting us internally begins to manifest itself physically in our lives that happens frequently in people the difference between disobedience and obedience is the difference between misery and joy so that's the pragmatic experience let me just end with this what does the bible say about obedience and joy Ezekiel 36, 27, one of my favorite verses. We use it often here. I will put my spirit within you. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes. That's obedience. And my spirit will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. That's obedience. What does that mean? The spirit will produce your obedience which means the Spirit is doing a fruitful work in you. And what does Galatians 5.22 say is the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Your obedience will make you happy. The the thin line to toe is that your obedience will make you self-glorifyingly happy. That's, That's not okay. That's legalistic. That, oh, I'm obeying, so I'm good. Now you're earning God's favor. That's legalism. How obedience makes you happy is it realizes your insane dependence on Jesus and then his power to, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in your weakness to obey, because you can't obey because you're weak, he is sufficient in his power to obey Through you. Look at what Ezekiel 36 27 says. God puts, not asks, doesn't ask, puts. Doesn't request, puts. Doesn't suggest, puts. His spirit in you. What does the spirit do? Ask if you'll obey? Suggest obedience? No. Cause you to walk in my statutes, cause you to obey my rules. You're not the obeyer. He is. But you have a sanctifying role in this, and I'm not going to go back to Philippians 2, 12, and 13 again. I do that all the time. When you obey, that is the power of the Holy Spirit revealing the nature of Christ in you. And when that doesn't happen, that's you. Obedience is not about just being rule followers and legalists and Pharisees. Obedience is about submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and expressing the power of the gospel to transform your life from disobedient defiance to God into obedient submission to Jesus. That is your joy. When my children don't obey me, or when they obey me and they grumble about it, I realize I have a serious joy problem, and that's why I'm struggling to get obedience. They don't enjoy their submission to me. That is a problem. I could say, I don't care if you like it or not, just do what I say, obey me. And then they obey me and hate me. And that's why people hate the doctrine of obedience. Because it makes God look like, obey me or you die. And they go, well, I hate you, but I'll do it because it's the only way to go to heaven. Which is not true. Instead of joy motivating a love and desire for Jesus that, that inspires us to follow him and submit to him because you love your master. I want my kids to love dad so much, so much. That they go, Dad, I just want to do what you want me to do. And I say, hey, son, go do this. And they go, yes, Dad, joyfully. Because they know that when they're done doing it, they get hugs and kisses and money from Dad. (laughs) Hey, God has a reward system, okay? He rewards your obedience. He really does. So I'm going to end with a question. It's a very simple, not complex, nor is it deep. It is surface and it is simple. What area or areas of your life need a radical change from disobedience to obedience to secure your joy in Christ? Let's pray. Only by your grace, Jesus. Only by your grace. By your faithfulness, by your grace that you empower in us to obey. We don't want to obey out of legalism. We don't want to obey just because there's rules and we have to follow them and that's Mm -hmm. it. We don't want that. That's evil. We don't want evil obedience. Because evil obedience is disobedience. We want joyful, submissive, passionate, pursuant, Desirable obedience. That's what we want. Do it in this church, God. And I think you're going to because I think you're doing it in me. And it is killing me. And it is so hard. And I... And I pray that you're doing it in me so that you would use me as an example for your people to do it too. So that I can say, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So God, in the presence of your people, in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict me of my sin and that you would change my life and that it would be marked by insanely radical joyful obedience to you and that in doing so, you would change the way that these people see obedience and see faithfulness and you would destroy The ridiculously terrible, evil, evangelical American church culture that says, grace, 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 I don't have to obey, and you would develop in this group of people a kingdom mentality that will change the way that this community sees who Jesus Christ really is. Do that. It is simple for you. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.